All right, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to James chapter 2. I've called this message, True Saving Faith. And I want us to look together at verse 14 of chapter 2 through to the end of verse 26. This is what he says. This is the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith, without, it's faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, it was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we come to this text, we need your help. We need your help to understand it. We need your help to understand what is it that you, through your servant James, is trying to tell us. Well, Lord, would you open our eyes to these truths this morning? They are life-saving truths. Open our eyes, Lord. Amen. Now, one of the ongoing memories I have as a kid was driving along with my dad. It usually be my mum and dad in the front, me, my younger brother, and my younger sister in the back. And when I was younger, I'm not even sure we had seatbelts back in those days. In fact, I'm pretty sure we didn't. But driving along... Um, and I still remember many times the car just sort of screeching to a halt, coming over at the side of the road, Dad running out of the side of the car and getting his binoculars out and doing this. And I remember thinking, what is he doing? You know, we were never allowed out the car. But once I get a bit older, sort of six and seven, you know, I decided that if he's going to jump out the car and look at whatever he's looking at, I'm going to jump out the car as well because there's obviously something to see. So we pulled over the, to the side of the road. Out he jumps. The binoculars come out, and then he could very quickly feel me by his side. And I'm like, Dad, what are you looking at all the time? Well, my dad was really into birds, birds of prey in particular. He absolutely loved them. And so whenever there was something that went anywhere near the car, that's it. The car changed to stop. Out he jumped. He was looking at binoculars at these birds of prey. And I remember jumping out of the car, getting with him. And Dad, Dad, what are you looking at? Okay, you're looking at these birds. But Dad, can, can I have a look? Because you're always really excited about them. 
And so he hands me down these big, this big set of binoculars. They were huge. At least they were to me. When you're six, everything is massive, you know. So they felt like about this big. So I'm holding them with, with everything I've got, looking through. And I remember for the first time seeing a bird of prey. And I remember it vividly. It's just saying, Dad, it is, it is massive. And it is, it is big. And it is fluffy. And it is brown. And it's just big and, and the more I'm talking about what it's like he's like son let me just have the binoculars for a moment and it would appear that the first time I ever held binoculars they weren't exactly in focus I had knocked the top as he handed me the thing and so he changes the top he's looking again changes the top puts him in focus and he gives me them back I remember to say dad now it is amazing it's not just big and blurry and fluffy it's it's defined it's got claws it's got a beak this thing is massive we see, the first time I looked through a set of binoculars, it just wasn't in focus at all, and it wasn't that impressive. But when my dad put those binoculars in focus, I could see clearly, and it really was incredible. And in many ways, I think that is exactly what James is doing in this passage. You see, the dispersion, those that had been persecuted in Jerusalem and had now had it out, they had or started to have a wrong understanding of true saving faith. They were looking through their binoculars at what they believed faith alone to actually mean. And they just weren't seeing it right. And it's almost like in this text, James then takes the binoculars back for them, puts them back into focus and says, now look again. Look at what true saving faith is. Look at how faith works and look at how works respond to faith. You need to see this clearly. And so he takes the binoculars and he gives them back because he wants them to see what true saving faith is. And he wants them to understand the relationship between faith and works because he knows if you get this wrong, this is going to be a nightmare for you. But if you get this right, you will mature in the faith, you will see clearly, you will be more assured and amazed in the Lord than you ever were before. But you must see this right. And the reason why I believe God has kept this passage here for us as God breathes scripture is because he wants us to see it too. He wants Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney to correctly understand true saving faith. And he wants us to understand in the relationship between faith and works, how they operate together for the glory of God. And if we don't understand that, we're going to be really immature in our faith. I remember one of my friends some years ago, and I was still at Christchurch, I bought him a book, and I said, oh, how's it going? He said, oh, I don't know. I whacked it against the wall and threw it in the bin. I'm like, oh, that's a bit uh, harsh. What was that? And it's because he didn't understand this. He thought that everything he was reading was legalism. What's the point? It doesn't matter. We're just saved by faith alone. It doesn't matter what we do. He never understood true saving faith and faith and works. Well, I've pondered this week how best to preach through this passage, and I've decided to do it as three questions. So three points that are actually questions that I think James helps us to understand in the entirety of the text, both prior and indeed in the text. And as we do that, we're going to try and understand true saving faith. So here's the first question. Number one, so how then does someone get saved? How does an individual truly get saved see if we don't understand this background question if we don't understand the thinking of the dispersion we're not going to understand what james then goes on to tell them so how does one get saved 
Well, here's the thing we must understand this morning as a congregation. We all do, in and of ourselves, in the natural, need to get saved, don't we? We all need salvation. But Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, Man is destined to die once, and after that faces judgment. Our world would have us believe that if you do come back, you just reincarnate as something. It's like the movie that just come on. You're, you're a dog. The dog just keeps reincarnating itself. And that's what happens to us. You know, if we're a good person, we come back as a dog. If we're a bad person, we come back as a flea or something. You know, you just come back as something different. Or you just don't come back at all. You die, and then we're done. But the Bible never teaches that. The Bible teaches that we are destined to die once, and after that, we face judgment. It's something James has just been impressing on our hearts as well. In James 2, verse 12, in the prior verses, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He's also saying, listen, you're going to stand before the Lord one day, so speak and act knowing that that is going to happen to you. And the Bible explains to us time and time again that that reality is a fearful thing because God is holy. He's the creator and majesty of all. He's the one who dwells in unapproachable light. He's the one we see in the book of Isaiah, seated high on his throne with the angels, huge, thunderous beings covering their eyes so that they don't get burnt out by his radiance. And one day we're going to stand before him and give an account for our lives, for what we say and what we do. And that's a fearful thing because Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the natural sinners. We're all in the natural cut off from God. James even tells us further in James chapter 2, verse 10, he says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. We're all transgressors. We're all lawbreakers. And we're all going to stand before the creator of the earth. We're all going to stand and give an account for what we've said out of our mouths, what we've done with our lives. And that's a fearful thing. And it's a fearful thing because in the natural now, we're cut off from God. We can't, he can't just spend time with us. We're sinful people and he is a holy God. He won't besmirch himself just by hanging out with us. He's distant from us. But moreover, we're not only an object of his wrath in the natural now, we will be an object of his wrath for all eternity within the confines of hell. See, man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. And if we are found in sin, we will be put away from him for all eternity into hell. This is what R.C. Sproul says about hell. He says, We have often heard statements such as, War is hell, or I went through hell. These expressions are, of course, not taken literally. Rather, they reflect our tendency to use the word hell as a descriptive term for the most ghastly human experience possible. Yet no human experience in this world is actually comparable to hell. If we try to imagine the worst of all possible suffering in the here and now, we have still not yet stretched our imaginations to reach the dreadful reality of hell. But there is no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. 
See, our media lies to us that hell's going to be fine. Hell is where the action is. Don't be a Christian. You'll be a small angel on a cloud playing a harp. How boring is that? Go to hell. We were recently on holiday in Noosa. There was even a song came on. I'm on a highway to hell. The crowd's gone crazy. And my wife leant over to me and said, you know what's sad about this? It's true. And it was one of those moments where the singing's still going on, but for my wife and I in that moment, we can't hear anything. As you just think, what, what do we do? Should I stand up now and preach? What shall I do? Because as this kid and his dad sang, I'm on a highway to hell. We're sitting there thinking, you are? You're far from him. In the natural, hell is the consequence of our sin for all eternity. A place that will come to no end. A punishment from which there is no escape, no relief, and no finish. But Here's the good news of the gospel. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 5. A ray of sunlight floods into our lives with these words. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Oh my, is that not good news? The background to our lives is hell, an eternity cut off from the Lord. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He broke into the world through the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life. And then he died in our place at Calvary as a ransom for many. He died as our sin bearer. He became the law for us. He pleased God by obeying all of the law in the way that none of us did. And then he died in our place at Calvary, receiving the righteous hell wrath of God in the full in our place instead. When the fullness of time had come, he sent His son as a ransom bearer so that we might be forgiven and redeemed and adopted as God's own sons. Is that not good news to you? That, my friends, is the gospel. It is the diamond on the black of the reality of who we really are. Jesus himself declared again and again, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. He could have left us. He could have abandoned us, and he would have been completely righteous to do so. He told us how to live. None of us did. He told us what we need to do. All of us rejected it freely. He would be righteous and just to just say, well, I asked you to do it. You didn't. Here's the consequence. I told you what the consequence would be. You didn't care. He would be completely righteous to do that. But he's also loving and gracious and merciful. So he sent his son for us. And he made it possible then through faith, through belief in him, that we wouldn't perish, but instead have eternal life. He made it possible that if we will bow our knee to him and say, Lord, I I take you as my king. I make you the Lord of my life. I believe you are God and I need you. You take him as your Lord. 
and you believe in your heart that he really did rise again, that he died in your place, then you will have this life and that in abundance that he talks about because you will be saved. So, how then does someone get saved? Well, simple. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. There's no other way. As Jesus said, no, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one is going to the Father except through me. So how do we get saved? Well, by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone as the only way, by bowing our knee to him and making him the Lord and Savior of our life. And the whole thing is by grace alone because we don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. We all rejected him. We were all not interested in him. We are all an object of his wrath. And yet through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, you and I can be saved. You know, this church in the dispersion, as they're spread throughout the nations, they knew this because they were well taught by James. They knew this was true. And they had heard through the grapevine, the Apostle Paul's incredible teachings as well, that it's by faith alone, faith alone, faith alone, nothing in our hands do we bring, simply to the cross we cling. They knew this was true. They knew that Jesus was the only way that our past lives, all the Jewish traditions, we no need to sacrifice lots of things, we no longer visit the temple and have to wear our hair a certain way. They knew that all those things do not earn you salvation. That it's just Jesus. It's just faith in Jesus. He's the only way. They knew all this. But this was brand new to them. It was brand new. See, this church, when this letter was written, this church would have only been about 14, 15 years old in the faith. It was only about 14, 15 years ago that Jesus has died. All their lives they thought, it's about what I do. It's about what I do. It's about what I do. That's going to get me to heaven. Jesus rocks their world and explains, it's not about you. It's about faith in me. And they know that. But this is brand new to them when James writes this to them. And here's the challenge when something is brand new. When something's brand new, it's brand new. You don't fully get it in its completeness. And one of the mistakes then this church is starting to make, this dispersion is starting to make, is my salvation is all by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone. So it doesn't matter the way I live anymore. I can do what I want. Because my salvation is all by faith and not by works. So I will do what I want. See the problem? They have no understanding. Well, where do works fit in then? I mean, works become irrelevant, right? Because my salvation is by faith. It doesn't matter what I do with my life because it's just by faith. And so James writes to them and goes, yeah, I think we need to sit down and have a chat about faith and works and true saving faith. Because I don't think you've quite got it yet. And I love you as a people. So let me talk to you about faith then and works. So that's the question, number two. So what then is the relationship between faith and works. How does this work? 
Well, here it is in a sentence for you. As I've studied this all week, I've tried to reduce it all to one main sentence so that we can understand with clarity. One main sentence that I think James is hammering again and again and again and again all the way through this text. Here's the one thing that I think he wants us to understand. We are indeed saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. But where that genuine saving faith exists, it will never be alone. Yes, we are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. It is all Jesus' work. From start to finish, it is all his work. But where that genuine saving faith exists, where it is real in your lives, that faith will never be alone. It'll never be alone. It will come out in your life. And thus his argument and his text begins. Verse 14. So what good is it, my brothers... If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Well, in the Greek, if you were sitting there hearing this for the first time, you would know in the way it was written that this rhetorical question has an answer. And the answer is no! (laughs) In the way it was written in the Greek, you would automatically know that him saying this, clearly the answer is no. But they had started to think the answer was yes! What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but not has works? Yeah, I just have faith. Works don't matter, right? Can that faith save him? Of course. But James is writing as if to say, no, that faith couldn't save him. This would have been a moment. This would have been a life-changing moment. I mean, when we started this series, and I talked about James being like a Chinese juggler that never misses. He takes those blades and he smacks them against your head. This would be one of those moments where they're against the board going, boom, boom. What? Can this faith alone save him? No. What, James? What, what do you mean? It's not what you taught us before. It's not what the Apostle Paul says then carries on through an illuminating illustration to try and bring this to life for them in 15 through 17. It says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So here's the illustration. You and Ewan, we, love, we all love you and Ewan, right? Just to confirm, we all love you and Ewan. We do, even though they're not being very vocal, we do. Um, you and Ewan come to church, and, and it quickly becomes apparent they have nowhere to live and no food. And they come to the mic, and they share it, and we all say, well, God bless you. Go well, and eat and delight all your merry. And that's it. Well, what good is that? You know, that's James's point. What's the point in that? A brother and sister comes to church, they've got nowhere to live, no food, and you just say, well, God bless you, do well. It's not helping them at all. It's going to take some actions to really bless them. Otherwise, it's just a waste of time. And what he's saying is faith is just like that. 
Faith by itself, if you're just saying, I just have faith, but it doesn't matter the way I live, that too is a waste of time. Because what that would reveal is your faith is dead. It is not true, genuine faith. It is not enough because it's not real. Faith without fruit, faith without works is dead. Whoa. Yes, we are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. But where that genuine saving faith exists, it will never be alone. Dr. John Piper, I think, says it wonderfully. I came across this quote about 15 years ago, and it's still the one that sticks in my brain whenever we're talking about this. This is what he says. He says, it is by grace we are saved through faith. Not of ourselves, for it is the gift of God. But the heart that is full of faith will always overflow in attitudes and actions very different from those which flow from unbelief. Therefore, our deeds will testify truly to the genuineness or absence of faith. And that reality is in no way inconsistent to us being saved through faith alone. But, he wonderfully writes, but we must understand that this reality does not mean that we in any way earn our salvation. No. Our deeds do not earn. They exhibit our salvation. Our deeds are not the merit of our righteousness. They are the mark of our new life in Christ. And our deeds are not sufficient to deserve God's favor, but they do demonstrate our faith. But we must always keep Keep that distinction clear in our mind regarding our attitudes and actions. Listen. They do not earn, they exhibit. They do not merit, they mark. And they do not deserve, they demonstrate. Isn't that brilliant? He's trying to help us see where faith exists, works will naturally exist. Because they're like two synchronized swimmers or ice skaters. They always go around together. Where faith is real, fruit will be real. And so this fruit, these works, they never save you. They never merit anything. They never earn anything. They never position you to deserve anything. But they do exhibit. They do mark. They do demonstrate that your faith is real. And so they always go together. They have a part to play. They mirror one another. Yes, we are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. But where that genuine saving faith exists, it will never be alone. There will be fruit come out of your life. You won't even be able to help it. Fruit that will point us back to what has been taking place in your heart that is truly real. Well, James knows they've probably been living with this for a while. So in verse 18, he imagines an objector. Here's what he imagines the objector saying, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Here's what he's saying. He's aware that some of you are probably going to say in this moment, well, look, James, I'm okay, you're okay. Let's just, you know, agree to disagree on that. That's fine. And so, James, if you want to, you know, you want to show people by your works that you say, great, but I'm just going to have faith. (laughs) 
And James is saying, it doesn't work like that. We can't just say, I'm okay, you're okay. The two are very different. For faith without works is dead. So we can't just say, well, I'll have that faith. I think you're still alive. No, it's not the way it works. Faith without works is dead. So you can't just say, I have faith but no works, but you have faith and works. But it doesn't really matter because we're both saved by faith. Faith without works is dead. So I can't leave you there. And then explains to him this imaginary objector why through an illuminating response of verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, meaning this person that isn't worried about works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Here's what he's saying. Listen, you want to just believe that you can have faith in God, but it makes no difference in your life, and that's going to be enough. Well, let me talk to you for a moment then about the demons. See, here's the thing about demons. There is not a, there is not a demon in the universe who is an atheist. All demons believe in God. All demons actually believe in the Trinity. All demons are aware that there is a Father, Son, and a Holy Spirit. All demons have been around a lot longer than you and I. All demons were there when most of this book was written. All demons are theologians. They know it. That's how they can twist it in your mind. That's how they can alter it just ever so slightly so you can't even quite notice. You just sense something isn't right because they know it really, really well. They believe that God is the Father. They believe that God is the Son. They believe that the Son is coming back. They believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and well. They have experienced all three. And when they think about all three, he says, they shudder. That word literally means they react like a bristled up, frightened cat. When they think of who Jesus is, when they think of what he's done, when they think of what he is going to do, and the fact that he's coming back, they are afraid. They bristle up like a frightened cat. And here's his point. You say then your faith alone is enough, that it doesn't matter about bearing any fruit in your life. Well, even the demons have that faith. They believe the same thing. They believe God is Father. They believe God is Son. They believe in the Holy Spirit. They believe Jesus died to give us life and that in abundance. They believe all those things, but they're not Christians. Because they haven't bowed the knee and made Jesus Christ the king of their life. And they don't believe that he died for them. So too then are you. Faith alone that bears no fruit in your life is dead. It's not enough because it's not real. Otherwise the demons would be in as well. Do you get his point? It is sobering and it is a smack between the eyes, I think. But it is so important that we understand it. He doesn't want to stand there with some of the congregation saying, no, I just think it's faith. It's just faith. It doesn't matter the way you live. He wants to go after them and say, whoa, whoa, stop there. Even the demons think that. Even the demons would agree with you. Do you think they're safe? Well, no. Well, then how do we know you are? True saving faith where it is real true saving faith that understands that it is faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, where it is real, that faith will never be alone. It will bear fruit in somebody's life. You won't be able to help it. 
Because if Jesus really is your king and your savior, you will be so amazed and in love with him, you won't be able to help revealing that in your life. And if you can help it, then the faith probably isn't really even there. He then gives two illustrations and examples of heroes of the faith to help this congregation understand exactly what he's saying then in a positive way, to show them how this faith and works marry and dance together. First example then is their patriarch, Abraham. And what a wonderful illustration he is of a man that reveals both faith and works. He says this in verse 21 through 23. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. See, he points us then very carefully to the patriarch Abraham, and in particular verse 21, through the moment where Abraham, in obedience to the Lord and in trust the Lord, was willing, if need be, to sacrifice his son Isaac. That's an incredible moment in history. That is a profound moment in redemptive history. See, Abraham is one of the fathers in the faith. All of his life, he wanted a child. Always wanted a son. He had no children because his wife Sarah was barren. They were childless. She was not able to have children. But in their old age, literally as Sarah hits her 80s, God appears to Abraham and says, you know what? I'm going to give you a son. (laughs) Well, their instant response is, "Eh, you got the wrong couple. We are retirees, but thanks for playing. I mean, that's why they called him Isaac, which means laughter. They thought this was funny. But God explains, no, I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to bless you with a son. And when Sarah was 90 years old, that is exactly what happened. They gave birth to a son. They called him Isaac. And Abraham loved him with all his heart. He was his one and only son. Yet when when Isaac was 16 years old, God appears once again to Abraham and says, now I want you to trust me even more. I want you to sacrifice your son for me. Well, imagine God turns up and tells you that. This is your son. Well, God, I do do trust you. I'm in. I love you. But kill my son? What do you mean? But this was a test for Abraham. And the very next morning after God encountered him, Abraham rose early in the morning. He got the donkeys ready. He had two servants come and help him. And he comes with his son and he says, Son, we've got to go to the Mount Moriah to worship the Lord. It was a three-day walk. No doubt with Abraham having tears down his eyes and anxiety the whole time aware of what was going to happen. For three days they walk to Mount Moriah. They arrive, they leave the donkey and the two servants to the side. And Abraham and his son Isaac walk to the top of Mount Moriah. And they make an altar. They cover the altar with wood. His son Isaac says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, Son, I need you to trust me. And he binds his son. And he puts his son on the altar. And with his arm up in the air, with a dagger about to fall, he's about to drive it into his son when an angel of the Lord says, Stop! 
And in that moment, he stops the dagger falling into his son because God had provided a ram caught in the thicket. And the angel explains, you are to replace your son with the ram. You know, Jesus himself said that on that day, Abraham saw the day of the Lord and rejoiced. Why? Because he knew in that moment that on this mount, the Lord would surely provide. I mean, this is an incredible moment. Have you ever wondered why God was sending Abraham on a three-day journey to sacrifice his son? Why not just do it in the backyard? Why go three days? Three long days of walking to Mount Moriah. Why Mount Moriah? Well, Mount Moriah became eventually the home of King Solomon's temple. King Solomon's temple became the home of Jerusalem. And archaeologists believe over time, the very Mount Moriah where Abraham was about to offer his son became Calvary. Well, no wonder then that Abraham in that moment saw the day of the Lord and rejoiced. Imagine as he's coming down from Mount Moriah with his son, realizing, son, God has not only saved you, he saved me. Because one will come and, son, I don't understand it all. But I believe one will die in all of our place. Abraham comes down from that moment rejoicing that God will surely provide. For on the mount, the Lord did provide. It's an incredible story, isn't it? But James wants this congregation to understand one thing. Wants them to understand, listen. Abraham was without doubt saved through faith alone, in God alone, by grace alone. He was saved the moment he believed God and understood how though this may be, Lord, I trust you and I'm all in. His faith in that moment saved him. As he says here, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Boom! He's justified in that moment. It's real. What James wants to show us is this, and yes, that was real. That was Genesis 15. But it was Genesis chapter 1 that showed that it really was real. It was Genesis chapter 21 where he demonstrated it, where he exhibited it, where he marked it. And so, yes, Abraham was without doubt saved through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. But his genuine saving faith, listen, it was never alone. It was revealed in his life. It was marked in his life. It can be seen. Well, James is aware that there's going to be some in the congregation that are going to push back and say, well, yeah, that's great. But, you know, Abraham, he was a patriarch. He was a father of the faith. I mean, God himself turned up and spoke to him. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. So maybe that's cheating. But James takes it now to the other end of the extreme, not a patriarch who is a Jew, but a prostitute who is a Gentile. And he gives them then the story of Rahab. Look at we have verse 25 and 26. He says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So we're done Abraham, the patriarch. Now we're doing Rahab the prostitute. And the story beckons from Joshua chapter 2 when Joshua sends out two spies into Canaan and in particular into Jericho. I mean, by now, 
Joshua is leading the Jewish people. Moses has died. Joshua has been risen up and now leads the Jews. He leads the entire nation and the army. And God commands Joshua that now is the time to cross the Jordan and take the heritage of Canaan for yourself. Well, then Joshua sends out two spies because he wants to know what is beyond there, what it is to see, and he particularly wants them to take a look at Jericho. And Jericho is going to be a nightmare of a city to try and beat because Jericho is incredibly fortified. It has two surrounding walls around it that are 12 foot high and 6 foot thick. And so these two spies are sent in to try and figure out uh, how exactly are we getting in there. And so they go into Jericho, they disguise themselves, but it quickly becomes apparent that you guys aren't from around here. So they rush off around Jericho and they run into Rahab's house because she's the prostitute. So no one's going to find them there. No one's going to think that's strange. So they run into Rahab's house. Everybody knows her, but they're not there for business. They're there for help, really. And she starts to talk to them and says, listen, where are you men from? What's happening? They start to explain who they are. And the truth is Rahab has already heard about this nation that is approaching them. She's already saying to them, there is great fear around because of you. And as the spies pressure in terms of why, what's your concern? She explains that I believe that your God is God. I believe that he is the God of the earth and the heavens. I believe, I've heard about the Exodus. Listen, I believe in him. Tell me more about him. In fact, tell me how I might be saved because I truly believe that your God is God. Well, before the spies can even answer, there's knocks at the door. People are looking for the two spies, and Rahab hides them because she knows these are God's men. These are God's people. She hides them and defends them at the risk of her own life, should they have been found. And in a miracle of grace, they're not found. The men come in. They can't see them. They're hiding on the roof. Rahab herself lives actually in the walls of Jericho. And so the people go, and she rushes back to the spies and says, you've got to leave but I will let you down through a rope out the window and then you must run into the hills because I'll tell you exactly where they're going to come after you. You must run into the hills and hide there. Well, just as she's letting down the rope, she she says to them again, listen, how do I get saved? I believe your God is God. Help me, what do I do? And they hand her a small scarlet cord and say, listen, tie this around your window and remain in your room and God will save you. That's what she does. She goes back to the room. She gathers all of her family members as the spies had instructed. She ties this small scarlet cord around her window. What she didn't realize is this scarlet cord ultimately pointed to the Passover that even now the Jewish people are having, reminding them of how God had pulled them out the wilderness, reminding them of how God in his grace had saved them through the blood of a lamb. Passover, which ultimately pointed forward to Jesus and how he would be the perfect lamb. And seven days later, as the Jews came, they haven't got no swords, they haven't got much going on. All they do is they start marching around Jericho. People must have looked on thinking, you are nut jobs. Seven days in, they march around Jericho. And on the seventh time, Joshua says, now we shout. And they all start shouting, and as they shout, the very walls of Jericho itself start crumbling to the ground. The nation is wiped out. The city is wiped out apart from one small part of the wall. One room, actually, that had a small scarlet cord wrapped around it. 
And inside, as the spies went in, they found Rahab and her family huddling for safety. God had saved her because she believed in him. She asked for salvation, and he did save her. What I love about that story is it continues. I wish I had more time on it. What I love about that story is it continues is he not only saved her, but he brought her into the Jewish family. He, he made her a part of Israel. And in time, she married a wonderful man called Salmon. And in time, they gave birth to a beautiful son called Boaz. And no doubt, the mum must have shared many a story with about her great salvation because Boaz then was the kinsman redeemer for Ruth, of which we have a whole book about. And in time, they then gave birth to Jesse. And in time, Jesse got married and gave birth to David, King David. And 28 generations later, through the line of David and ultimately then through the line of Rahab, Jesus was born. He hadn't just saved her from Jericho. He had saved this prostitute and brought her into the very genealogy of Jesus Christ himself, which we read about in Matthew chapter 1. Isn't that incredible? What a grace-filled, glorious story. But here's what James wants them to see. I've shown you Abraham. Now look at this prostitute. She was saved in that room as she's chatting to the spies, saying, I believe, I believe he is God. I believe he's the only way of my salvation. She was saved then. But that faith wasn't alone. Because when they said, okay, we'll tie this scarlet cord around, that's exactly what she did. Gather your family. That's exactly what she did. Because she believed, and she couldn't help it then, but come forward in her life. She was saved just like Abraham through faith alone, in God alone, by grace alone. But her genuine saving faith was never alone. She didn't just say to the spies, how can I be saved? And they said, well, tie the scarlet cord around. She goes, okay, fine. Oh, I didn't quite get round to it. I don't know. I've got stuff to do. That wasn't the case. She said, okay, I'm on it. I'm on it. I believe. Tell me what to do. I'm in. Her faith saved her. But her faith brought fruit in works. It was evidence. We are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Fact. But where, but where genuine faith, saving faith exists, it will never be alone. Like two synchronized swimmers, there's always two of them. Like figure skaters, there's two of them mimicking each other. Indeed, like the wings of a bird. Kent Hughes says it this way, wonderfully. He says, faith and works are like the wings of a bird. There can be no real life, no flight with a single wing, whether works or faith. But when the two are pumping together in concert, their owner soars through the heavens. For faith and works, listen, neither is authentic without the other. Where it's works alone, Paul and James would say, oh, listen, that ain't going to work. You're never going to do enough in your life to gain acceptance by God. What James wants to help us see is, listen, faith alone, if that bears no fruit in your life, it's not real either. It's dead. They've both got to be there. Faith illuminating itself in works so that we may look at the works and say, clearly your faith is real because it came forward in fruit. Like two wings of a bird, neither is authentic 
without the other. So number three, final question briefly. So how then should we respond to this now? Well, my friends, for the vast majority of us here, people who have truly put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I think what this moment then affords us is a moment to humbly and enthusiastically give thanks to God for this great salvation. Because here's the reality, my friends. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were lifeless. (laughs) You weren't seeking. I love that when we say, oh, they're seeking. No one's seeking naturally. (laughs) No one cares. You're dead in your transgressions and sins. You are far from the Lord and uninterested in the Lord. And by nature, then, you were an object of his wrath. But God, when the fullness of time had come, sent his son for you. He sent his son so that he may bring you life and that in abundance. And at the right time, through his death and resurrection and the gift of the Spirit, he opened your eyes to the reality of salvation. He then gave you the gift of faith. And as you responded genuinely in faith, bowing your knee to him as your king and believing that he died in your place, he saved you in that moment. He forgave you. He redeemed you. He adopted you into the family of God himself. He assured you that heaven will be your home. And when you went forth then and followed thee and started to live for him, the very thing James is talking about, it should then give us a moment to look back and say, whoa, whoa, my works are only a reality of his saving So though this is an unexpected place to find rejoicing, I think seen correctly, it is a source of great rejoicing because if there is any work in your life, any fruit in your life, that is a clear sign of true saving faith. And that true saving faith is all by grace. So all eyes and all glory for our salvation's past, present, and future need to go to him. And that is what this text affords us. It is all about Jesus and always will be. And yet as I study this text this week, there were two groups of people beyond the majority that I felt the Lord put on my heart, two burdens. And the first burden is for parents of older children. Maybe your kids are 10, 11, 12, through to maybe even early 20s. Maybe you've got younger kids. Well, they'll be older kids before you know it. You blink, and they're there. I still remember when Josh was born, walking around with him in the room. Now he's taller than me, and he's going to be holding me in a few weeks. Listen, if you're a parent of older children, here's what I want to encourage you with. I think one of our greatest dangers as parents is we can rely on some profession of faith that they made when they were six or seven years old. And even though their lives in the older years are clearly far from the Lord, we rely on a profession of faith when they made them when they were six and seven. I would encourage you in grace not to do that. And I would encourage you in grace to if you have older children that are not walking with the Lord, to take some time with them over the next few weeks, where appropriate, to talk them through this text and to explain to them, love, I love you. 
And so I just want to ask you two questions. Here's the first. Listen, what do you understand it means to get saved? How do you believe you can get saved? Now, I believe we've probably taught our kids well in that. And they'll probably say, well, Dad, it's through faith alone in Jesus alone. It's all by faith. It has nothing to do with what we do. Which point you say, you are right. But then talk them through James chapter 2 and say, listen, you're right. Salvation is by faith alone. It is just him. But James tells us that faith without works is, is dead. And where faith exists, it will bear fruit. And darling, I'm concerned about the fruit in your life. So where would you say you're at? Listen, I think that could be a hard conversation. But here's my exhortation to you as parents. If you don't have it, then who will? God has given them you to parent them and pastor them and look after them. That is the call of God on your life. And this doesn't have to be done aggressively. In fact, I would flee from doing anything of the sort. I think you do it very gently and very lovingly, helping them see, I am here as your dad coming after your soul in this moment. And I don't want you to go through your life thinking you're saved because of some small profession of faith when you were young. Because, darling, even the demons believe. Is it real for you? And if it's not, as your dad, how can I help you? because I love you. Parents, please do that. If you have older children walking with the Lord, realize God has given them a wonderful gift, and that gift is you. So help them. And the second group then is those who have never put your faith in Jesus. You're here today, and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior like it talks about here. You believe. You believe he's God. But you've never bowed the knee to him as your king. Well, my friends, true salvation involves both. Paul says it this way in Romans 10 verse 9. He says, For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, literally, if you say with your mouth and believe it out of the heart speaking that he is the king, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he died in your place genuinely for you, then in that moment, you will be saved. Friends, if you've never done that, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never bowed the knee saying, listen, I believe, I believe you are God. And so I believe I'm going to stand before you on that last day. I believe you, I believe it all. I'm in. Then do that today. Don't wait another day. And you will then know the life that he brings, true forgiveness true redemption, true adoption, true knowledge and understanding that heaven is your home. And you know what will happen then? You'll bear fruit in your life. You probably won't even have to try that much. It'll just happen because your faith is alive and it will change your life. Let's pray. Well, Lord, once again, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity. And Lord, we do thank you for challenging us and bringing into perspective true saving faith. Lord, I can think of few topics more pertinent and important than this one. So Lord, would we be sobered by it? 
Would we be equipped by it? Would we be pastored by it? Would we live in accordance to it? Lord, you are God and we are not. So would we bow the knee and would all glory go to you? In Jesus' name, amen.